Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Isaiah Whitlock Jr. has been a working actor for a very long time. He got his first TV parts in the 80s, started acting on stage well before that. Like any good working New York actor, he's also had over a dozen cameos on different versions of Law & Order. In the early 2000s, though, he got a role that changed the trajectory of his career. He played State Senator Clay Davis on The Wire, a corrupt but charming Baltimore politician who manages to gum up plans for drug dealers, fellow politicians, and police officers alike. You might recall his catchphrase, an expletive which he said in an extraordinary extended manner. Anyway, while Whitlock's role in The Wire was a huge break for him, it showed the world something that was always true. Whitlock is a compelling screen presence. He can be charming or menacing or funny. Sometimes he is all those things at once. Last year, he starred in Spike Lee's To Five Bloods with Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, and the late Chadwick Boseman. These days, he's starring alongside Brian Cranston in the new TV show, Your Honor, on Showtime. It's a legal thriller that revolves around the cover-up of a hit-and-run involving the son of a New Orleans judge, played by Cranston. Isaiah plays Charlie, Cranston's character's best friend. In this scene, Michael meets Charlie at a diner. He's just asked him for a pretty huge favor to help him dispose of his son's car. It's got to be painful for you. Seeing it there every day, in the street, outside your home. If you were never to see it again, it would be harder for a day or so. The absence. And then... Drop the key behind the front left wheel. Give me a few hours. I don't have a brother. And then again, I do. Isaiah Whitlock, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on cornering the market on moral relativity and acting. <laughs> At this point, I think you're... <laughs> anytime someone needs somebody to do something kind of shady... <laughs> not absolutely purely shady but pretty shady I, i'm good i'm good with the shade i'm good with the shade you know <laughs> ask me to do something outright maybe not but a little shady yeah i can handle that <laughs> how, how did you get this part they uh called up presented it to me you know and i, I looked it over found out uh what it was who it was and uh, just the thought of being able to work with Brian Cranston and people like Michael Stolberg, Hope Davis, I, I really just jumped at the chance. And it, the part also presented me a little bit of a challenge because, you know, I'm always sort of trying to, I mean, after doing Clay Davis in The Wire, you know, you make a hard stamp. And I'm always looking for things to be able to kind of move away from that. And even though there's some similarities with this character, there's enough there to make it seem like it's a little bit different. I can do some different things. I can really kind of 
open up. And that really excited me. I mean, it's really something to think that you were about 50 years old when you got a career-defining role, and then here you are in your mid-60s, you just starred in a movie, uh-huh. Into Five Bloods, a critically acclaimed movie. It's odd parts of your life to have these kinds of extraordinary career milestones, but in a way, kind of good parts of your life to have those things happen? Like, you'd hate to have done those things at 20 and have it be all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. I never really look at it that way. I mean, I guess in hindsight, you know, maybe I'm making up for some lost time because I got to say, I didn't play roles like this when I was in my 20s. I pretty much basically, when I look at it, I waited for the landscape to change. And when the landscape changed, I was still there. So I was able to uh, get some of these roles and do a lot of the things that I've always wanted to do but just never got the chance to do in my 20s and 30s. Yeah, I I looked at your IMDb, and you know, you've been working as an actor for more than 40 years now. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that jumped out to me in terms of your screen work was that you had played 12 different characters on various Law and Orders. (laughs) (laughs) And if that isn't a working New York actor, I don't know what is. (laughs) Look, they they kept calling me back. I kept going in, doing the job. I didn't realize it was that many, but I think it would be hard-pressed to find anybody else who was on on that show more than me. I mean, with uh, Law & Order, Special Victims Unit, Criminal Intent, I mean, I did them all. And um, one of the funniest things was I was on the original first episode of Criminal Intent, And my agent called me 10 years later and he said, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is they're bringing your character back on criminal intent. The bad news, it's going to be the last episode they ever do. (laughs) So (laughs) I was on the first one and I was on the last one. And the squalid part about this story is that I was still available after 10 years. <laughs> that, they, that they called up and they knew, well, you know, we could, we could always get Isaiah, you know. Uh, we'll find him. So uh, I did quite a few of them. You grew up in South Bend, Indiana, which mm-hmm. is probably better known for football than it is for entertainment. What was your interest as a kid? Did you think that you were going to grow up to become an actor? No. I was pretty much into sports, football, things like that when I was in high school. Uh, I didn't really have any desire to be an actor. But then I went away to college in Minnesota, a place called Southwest State, Minnesota. And I played football there for about a year. I got banged up so much. I mean, I had concussions and broken ankles. And to me, it just didn't seem to make sense anymore. I mean, I thought if you're not going to play professional football, which I was not, what was the point? So I had to start looking for something else. And um, uh, I wandered by the theater department. They were doing a production of The Crucible. And I managed to get a part in The Crucible, Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And I've been working ever since. It must have been a pretty different scene in the theater department than it was on the football team. Uh, it was, it was, and <laughs> uh, I got, I got, took a lot of ribbing for uh, going to the theater department. 
it was interesting because at that time, Jim Brown, the great Jim Brown football player, had left the Cleveland Browns to become an actor in in Hollywood. And so, you know, like the Dirty Dozen and things like that. And so people were like, so who, what are you trying to do? You trying to be like Jim Brown? You want to go to be like Jim Brown and be, be this athlete turned actor? And I was like, no, I mean, I really had found something that I really enjoyed. And to me, it wasn't just the acting. It was uh, it was the plays and the literature. And I really got into it. And, you know, uh, Chekhov and Shakespeare and, and all of these different writers, my grades and everything just shot up. And I was on the dean's list because I was really excited about it and really prepared myself to be an actor from that point on. I don't know how else to ask this, but how many other black folks were there at Southwest State, Minnesota? Uh, uh, there was me. <laughs> Let the record state. I am presuming that you have your thumb pointed out and you're about to like lift your index finger and then your middle finger. <laughs> there were not very many of us. I would say there was there was a handful. And we were, we, we, you know, at that time, we were a pretty close-knit group, you know, because we're talking about uh, 1972, 73, round about then. So, you know, the world was changing and uh, going through that whole change of 60s, 70s, that kind of a thing. So you, you sort of made your way. You did the best you could, you know, and then... Uh, I went out to San Francisco and got the culture shock of my life, and but I survived that. And after that, I was able to do pretty much anything or go anywhere. Did you go to San Francisco to become an actor? I know you. I know you were at ACT for a time. Yeah, I had gone out in the summer of 1975, just for like a summer program that they had, and they liked me enough to ask me to stay there and go to school there and study there. But I should say that ACT is the American Conservatory Theater. Right, right. American Conservatory Theater. And I had promised my dad that I would finish college. That was a big thing for me. I knew what it meant to him. So I said, uh, I can't stay. But if, if I can go back and finish college and come back, I'll do it. And that's what they let me do. And I went back to uh, the American Conservatory Theater studied for about two or three years, and then they took me into the company there. I was in the company there for about four years, and then after I left there, I came to New York. Had either of your parents gone to college? No. I, nobody in my family had gone to college, and I had quite a large family. So it really did mean a, a big thing to finally have somebody take that step and, and finish. And... Uh, just how proud my father was. Uh, I'll never forget that. Was it a hard choice to make or an easy one? It was an easy choice back. to make. Easy choice. Very easy. Um, I even started, I sang with a band when I was in college and they wanted to uh, leave school and go on the road and everything, which they did. But again, I dropped out of the band because I said, you know, I, I got to finish college. I, 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 one, I didn't go to college to join a band. And I said, I've got to finish school. So 
Clutching the Shifters was the name of the band. I was about to say what I was going to say it because it would be more fun if I said it. <laughs> you can go ahead and say it. <laughs> Prove that it said it here on my notes. Clutching the Shifters. <laughs> Members of the Middle American Music Hall of Fame or something along those lines. Yes, we're in the uh, Mid America Music Hall of Fame. Bob Dylan is in that in that Hall of Fame. So, you know, when people start to knock it, you know, look, when people start to knock it, I always say, well, you know, and, and you're in what Hall of Fame? No, I mean, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, a hall is a hall, you know, uh, but it's a rock and roll hall of fame, you know, so I'm very proud of that moment. Uh, you went to ACT and uh, your classmates at ACT included, among others, Delroy Lindo, who was one of the other stars of the Five Bloods and perhaps ACT's most distinguished alumnus, a guy called Denzel Washington who folks might have heard of. Mm -hmm. um, what were you studying there? How was it different from going and, you know, getting an MFA from Yale School of Drama or whatever? I didn't know that much about, say, like Yale or uh, uh, Juilliard or, or places like that. I mean, you heard about them. And, you know, they were like the major programs. My whole feeling at that time was the fact that – a you know, any program wanted me. I mean, it was like I didn't really care too much where I was. Uh, and in hindsight, you know, if if you can act, you can act. And I had a pretty good setup uh, when I was at ACT. I mean, I was in the company there working with some great actors and things like that. But it was quite a class when I look back. Uh, I was a couple of years ahead of Delroy and uh, Denzel, but we were all there in San Francisco. Danny Glover was in San Francisco at that time. It, you know, you had interactions. You know, when I when I went to Thailand to shoot the Five Bloods, to be able to talk to Delroy after 40 years about that time was special because we were all sort of like making our way and trying to find out, you know, who we were as human beings, as actors, and, you know, the mistakes and things like that that you've made along the way, but the successes that we've, we've, we've had. And yet we were still standing after all those years. What specifically did you talk about? Uh, we talked about just the situation in the school and being in the company and, uh, kind of like the state of theater at that time, because at that time, there wasn't very much to do. So they were desperate times. I mean, you, you had to really scratch and seek out where the work was. A lot of stuff was in New York because, you know, they had the Negro Ensemble Company and a lot of other theaters in New York City. But once you got out of New York City, the pickings were, were kind of slim. So you always had that in the back of your mind. So we talked a little bit about that and how the landscape has changed. There's so many opportunities. You know, I always tell people, I say, you know, back then you had three channels on television and you didn't see very many African-Americans on those channels. Uh, so you, you always sort of went through that period of, am I wasting my time doing this because I don't see the opportunities that's why you had to have something a little deeper going on 
that was holding you there. You know, you had to really love the literature, the the the, the plays, the writing and things like that to kind of help get you through those tough times where you don't feel like you're just sitting there treading water or wasting time. And as the landscape started to change, it was able to help you uh, cement yourself in the industry. What mistakes did you talk about? Well, we talked a little bit about our approach, our approach, because my, my approach was, and pretty much is like my approach today is, I could see the seriousness of the situation, but I didn't let it get too deep inside me, so to speak, to where it put me on a different course. Uh, And I'm not going to say he did either, but we talked about how we handled uh, different situations in the theater uh, because um, you couldn't get too bogged down in, let's say, like the politics of the times to let it derail you. And you just sort of had to keep your eyes on the prize and keep going forward. I mean, it's a lot of different responsibilities. I think in just being in acting school, mm-hmm. the politics of that are plenty, <laughs> you know, not to, not to uh, paint with a broad brush about actors or acting school, but you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of feelings yeah. in theater school. And then, to be dealing with the literal politics of the outside world Mm -hmm. in the early 1970s and to be dealing with the fact that uh, the two of you were African-American in a theater world that it had basically only occurred to uh, this world to include African-Americans at all, like 10 years earlier. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like from zero to two out of a hundred had happened 10 years previously with, you know, Lorraine Hansberry or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I had a conversation where we talked about, was it a meritocracy where you go and would it just all be about a meritocracy and your vision? I never really looked at it that way. You know, I always knew, well, it might be a meritocracy one day, but then there's other days where, uh, I saw a lot of people, you know, sliding through that uh, it made you wonder. So, you know, you got to take the bitter with the sweet, the give and take of the business and just not let it get you down. And I still sort of feel that way. You have a really wonderful start to your career on film. Your IMDb and your Wikipedia list two films in which you appeared in 1990, both of which are profoundly beloved cult classics. Uh, one is Goodfellas and the other is, the other is Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Um, I, I've actually seen Gremlins 2, The New Batch more recently. I saw that about eight, eight months or a year ago. It's a pretty amazing movie. Uh, can you tell me, uh, can you tell me how it came to be that you ended up in two pretty big movies to start your career, albeit in, in, in small roles? Gremlins 2, I think I was like a fireman or something. That might have been like the first or second movie that I that I did. I was really like trying to scratch things out. But Goodfellas was interesting because I had become a member of the actor studio. And Paul Newman was looking for some people to come over to his apartment and read The Color of Money uh, with... Um, Martin Scorsese, Tom Cruise, 
And I went over to to the apartment to read. You said, sorry, I'm busy. I have plans, (laughs) Paul Newman. (laughs) I have a date, so. Yeah, it's like, uh, look, uh, you know, I got to go over to Paul's uh, apartment (laughs) and uh, sit on the couch and read. And and he had a handful of people there, and we're all sitting around, and we're and we're reading the color of money, and of course I wanted a part in the movie, and I didn't get a part in the movie. That part went to Forrest Whitaker. But when Goodfellas came around, I went to audition for Goodfellas. I got an audition for Goodfellas, and I got a call back, and I got call back for. Can't remember the actor's name, but the scene is when he's comes to um, Joe Pesci with the bill and Pesci hits him over the head with the bottle. He owns the restaurant or whatever. And I thought, well, there's no way they're going to cast me in this part. But I got a call back, so I'm not going to say no. I, I haven't really done a movie. So I go and... I walk in and Scorsese says, um, I know you from somewhere. And I said, yeah, I, I did those readings on the couch uh, for The Color of Money. And he says, oh, yeah, 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 that's great. That's great. He says, well, look, the, the part you auditioned for, you, you can't play that. But I do have this role of a doctor. It's a very, very small part, but it's very instrumental to the movie. It's the only guy that Henry Hill trusts. He's all coked out and everything like that. Do you think you could do that for me? I know it's not much, but do you think you could do that? And inside I'm saying, act like you've been there. Act like you've been there. And I say, yeah, yeah, sure, Marty. Yeah, I I think I could do that. uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. And... (laughs) So he Let said, me check Great. in with Paul real quick. I'm going over to his apartment. <laughs> yeah, <later."> right. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in Goodfellas. But at the time, I kind of took it in stride until I started going out and I started telling people, yeah, you know, I got this part in this movie, Goodfellas. And that was the big story was how the hell did you get a part in Goodfellas, uh, which was called Wise Guy at the time. And I was working a job at a restaurant, and there was one guy who actually said, look, tomorrow I'm going down, and I'm going to audition for Goodfellas, because if you got a part, I know I'm going to get a part. (laughs) It's like like, they must just be giving parts away in this movie if they hired you. Well, needless to say, he didn't get a part, and uh, screw him. (laughs) We've got so much more with Isaiah Whitlock Jr. still to come. We haven't even talked about The Wire yet. We'll talk about that and about how he came to embrace Clay Davis's signature catchphrase. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe, or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. To become a world champion in freediving, Tanya Streeter learned to breathe like this. 
ideas about air, breath, and breathing. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Listen, I'm a hotshot Hollywood movie producer. You have until I finish my glass of kombucha to pitch me your idea. Go. All right, it's called Who Shot Ya? A movie podcast that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. I'm Ify Wadiway, the new host of the show and a certified BBN. BBN? Buff black nerd. I'm Alonzo Duraldi, an elderly gay and legit film critic who wrote a book on Christmas movies. I'm Drea Clark, a loud white lady from Minnesota. Each week, we talk about a new movie in theaters and all the important issues going on in the film industry. It's like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner meets Cruising. And if it helps seal the deal, I can flex my muscles while we record each episode. I'm sorry, this is a podcast? I'm a movie producer. How did you get in here? Iffy, quick, start flexing. Bicep, lats, chest. Who shot you? Dropping every Friday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with actor Isaiah Whitlock Jr. He's performed in movies like Goodfellas and Five Bloods. He played State Senator Clay Davis on The Wire, and he's starring in the new Showtime series, Your Honor. Let's hear the rest of our conversation. Your character on The Wire, Clay Davis, he was briefly in the first season of the show, right? You, mm-hmm. it, was, it was just starting up when you went in. Yeah. Did you get to read any whole scripts before you went in for that part? Or had you just seen Little Sides? No. The, the thing with The Wire is also very interesting because... I was in season one and season two, but I was only supposed to be there at a cocktail party. There was no storyline. There was nothing written. It was just the state senator. After those, they decided, well, we should maybe do something with this. We should maybe do a storyline. And when they called me to come back for season three, I initially said no. Because I thought it was just going to be this sort of cocktail party stuff. And I was doing Othello in Alabama. And I said, no, I can't be bothered. I, I just, uh, I'm not going to go. And my agent called me and he says, are you sure? I said, no. I said, I'm doing Othello down here in Alabama. I can't be concerned with some little cocktail party. And um, they finally convinced me to go. And David Simon pulled me aside and said, no. We've got this whole thing set up, this whole storyline where you're going to be ripping off the drug dealers and things like that. And they think they're ripping you off and you're going to be ripping them off. And that's when I got excited about it. But I was never, ever on their radar from the beginning. Was the show on your radar? I mean, did you realize by then what it was? Yeah. Not many folks were watching it at the time. Yeah, I did because I had a lot of friends on the show and... uh you know, I, I mean, I thought the show was great. I just didn't, I really at the time just didn't see myself in it. And then when I got on it, I can admit this now, my biggest fear was that I said, don't be the weak link. This is like a great show. Don't be the weak link. Don't be the guy, you know, they say, oh yeah, The Wire. And then that guy, <laughs> Isaiah Whitlock. Uh, other than that, the show's like fantastic. But I was terrified. I was just terrified. You know, I said this could go one of two ways. But that being said, I had the courage enough to do what I wanted to do. And uh, when I was at, at the American Conservatory Theater, the artistic director, Bill Ball, would always say, fail big. If you're going to fail, fail big. So I thought, OK, I'm going to fail big and kind of go for it and play what I feel or what I think this character 
should be. And there was a period where I thought, oh, I know they're going to fire me. But then I also thought, you know, if they don't like it, they can always cut it. But nobody ever said anything to me. And they just kind of let me continue to create. And it was that freedom that they gave me that allowed me to just even do more stuff and uh, solidify that character. How did you feel the um, the impact of your work on The Wire? Did folks talk to you about it? Uh, every day. Every day. It At the end of The Wire, David Simon came to me and he said, you know, you know you're going to have to live with uh, the catchphrase and everything like that. And I didn't believe him. I thought, nah, you know, a year from now, nobody's going to really pay too much attention to it. But there's a few things there. One, I had to live with the catchphrase. But I also saw how the character affected people. It, it's like you're a bad guy and you're going to make people love you. It would be so easy to just sort of dismiss the character. But the key is to make people like you and make people enjoy you when they see you. And uh, I thought I was able to do that on the show. And then fast forward to today, people still feel that way. I mean, there's times when, you know, uh, not not just here, but around the world, places I've gone where people stop me in, in Venice or, or uh, New Zealand or something like that, and they're going on and on and on about the wire and, and my character on the wire. You alluded to your character's catchphrase, which was uh, an expletive that starts with SH and in the show is, I'm trying to public radio this, <laughs> and in the show is is extended and emphasized. Um, and in fact, I mean, I guess this is just going to sound like, a, on the radio at least, it'll sound like a beep, but the first appearance of, of you... <laughs> Like a comic book. The first appearance of uh, of my guest, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., saying an extended expletive that starts with S.H. on film was in the 25th hour, the Spike Lee movie. Why don't we take a listen to that? You know, it's a good thing I found this. It's going to make yourself so much more comfortable to sit on. Mr. Brogan, I do believe you're f- <laughs> <laughs> So, on the wire, were they already aware of your extraordinary ability to say that particular expletive? Uh, that I don't know. What I, I, you know, it was weird because when I got on the wire, I really didn't want to do it. I really didn't want to do it in the twenty-fifth hour. I remember. Um, when I auditioned for the 25th hour, I did that and, and Spike Lee kind of laughed and said, you know, he said, you should keep that. But when I got to set, I had some other stuff rigged up that I was going to do. And I heard cut. He said, uh, you should do that thing you do. And I said, uh, what? He said, you know, that thing you were doing at the, uh, at the audition. Yeah, do that. And, uh, I said, I was thinking about maybe trying to do that later. He said, no, I think you need to do that now, and you can also do it later. And so that's when I, when I did it, pulling the stuff, out of the, the stuff out of the couch. And so that's where that started. And then when I got onto the wire, I mean, saying that word is, is common. 
uh, sure. you know, to, especially among African-Americans. It wasn't like the first time you had heard it. I think the difference was the way I did it and where you place it in the nose and the, I mean, you know, I'm not going to get too technical, but it that's what started to get a little, that's what I thought elevated it. So when I got on the wire, it was written in to a couple of the scripts that I had. And at first I thought, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. But then I thought, ah, what the hell, you know, I'll just let it rip. And, uh, the next next episode, it ripped and it kept ripping and kept ripping. And all of a sudden, uh, it became uh, part of my life. <laughs> I mean, one of the wonderful things about that television show is that it is so grounded, especially relative to other dramatic TV, that when there is something ridiculous or magical, like those moments can play perfectly fine because because it is so not ridiculous of a program. I mean, it's like the least ridiculous dramatic television show you could make. And so it plays because yeah. everything else is a profoundly sincere deconstruction of power structures in America. Mm -hmm. But again, the key is making that thing sincere. It has to be sincere. Otherwise, if they see you blink, if they see you are not totally committed to it, that's when it becomes, you know, this weird sort of caricature type thing. But if you place it right and you really commit to it and you really make it honest and sincere about how it is you feel about something, they have no reason but to uh, buy it. And when you look at a lot of these characters similar to that, that's what I that's what I always see is that if you really commit to it, it can work for you. I think that same thing is true of that character in general. I mean, I think it's easy to portray a corrupt politician as a sort of unvarnished, pure evil. Mm -hmm. But I think Clay Davis exemplifies something that I think is probably a lot closer to the way corrupt politics actually play out in the real world, which is people who have their vision for the world and the way that they want to change their world, represent their community. It gets tied up in their own identity of who they are. And mm -hmm. they start making compromises about how to get that moving forward. And, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated than just, you know, twiddling the ends of a curly mustache. Yeah. You got to keep it very, very subtle and you got to stay ahead of, of the viewer uh, with what it is you're doing. It's not an easy part to play, I felt, uh, because, you know, there's a lot of traps there and it, it can just become sort of like this evil guy. But the real key to me with Clay Davis was I was like, I'm going to make it to where you can't dismiss me, where you just can't say, oh, he's the bad politician or whatever. Uh, I'm going to make it to where you need to deal with me. You can't dismiss me. You've got to watch me. You've got to uh, be aware of what it is I'm doing because I can go one way or the other. And when I look at some of the politicians we have today, I'm not going to start mentioning names, but that's what they do. Yeah, I mean, The, the Wire ultimately was not a show about good people caught up in a bad system, though I guess you could probably say that of the children at least, mm -hmm. or bad people perpetrating a bad system, but human beings 
in a system that chews them up to various degrees yeah. who are just human, yeah. you know? Speaking of grace notes, there are a lot of celebrities who have their own brand of alcohol. The only celebrity whose alcohol I can say I've ever purchased is E40. Uh, shout out to E40 Tequila and Slurricane. That's sort of my responsibility as a native of the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Most of those did not start their process by uh, making the alcohol in their house in like a series of tubes and vats. <laughs> and the second that I read that you were ma- trying to make Chardonnay in your uh, dining room, <laughs> I, I was over the moon about it. <laughs> like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so when did you decide that you could make wine in your apartment in New York City? <laughs> You know, you're sitting there and you're drink, you're drinking a little wine. Maybe I was drinking a little too much. And I said, well, how hard can this be? So I went out and I bought like all of the equipment and some fairly sophisticated equipment, and uh, but just on a small scale. And I made, uh, I made Chardonnay and I made uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. And I, I got the juice. It was frozen. Uh, which is what they do a lot now. And, you know, I read up on it, and I started making it in my apartment. Uh, This was after I broke up with my girlfriend, but (laughs) otherwise she would have said, you know, there's no way, you know, get this stuff out of here because it really consumed, like, the whole apartment. And it did smell a little bit, but... (laughs) 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 But it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. And then I, I found a place in New Jersey, a place called California Wine Works, and they had a big facility and everything like that. So I was able to source the grapes from Napa and then do the, the, the blending and the fermenting and all of that there. And that's what I did. And now I make very good wine. I, I always take it to, if I take it to a party, I just put it there. And let people drink it, and they go, oh, my God, you know, this is really good. Where, where, Who is this? Who is this? And it's like, well, it just happens to be uh, uh, Whitlock. Uh, but uh, if I come right out and tell them that I made it, uh, usually they, they don't touch it. You know, they look at me, and they look at the wine, and they say, okay, I think I'll have a Coke. <laughs> well, you named one of the wines after uh, – a dance associated with a, a mm-hmm. Rufus Thomas hit from the mid seventies for like, it's one of the ones he does in Watt stacks or something like that. Yeah. The funky penguin. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I can tell you're enjoying it is what I'm saying. Yes. 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 Well, the funky penguin was a dance that uh, was real big back in the seventies, you know, which I was very adept at doing, you know, that's what I did when I was with clutching the shifters, uh, you know, I wore a silk lame suit and uh, and I did the funky penguin and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Uh, <laughs> hey, we're in the Hall of Fame, okay? We're in the Hall of Fame. So I couldn't have, I couldn't have been that bad. <laughs> now I've got you in my head like like swirling swirling the wine around in, in your mouth saying like I, I taste notes of notes of cherries and, you know, vanillins and. Uh, North Pole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
if I get a bigger operation than my uh, living room, uh, you'll you'll see it on your shelves, you know. Well, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., I, I sure appreciate you coming on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. Isaiah Whitlock Jr., as we said before, he is starring alongside Brian Cranston in the new TV show, Your Honor, which is now streaming on Showtime. Go check that out. And if you haven't seen him into Five Bloods, you should. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created in the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where construction across the street from my home has not only made it very difficult to record, uh, but also has led me to go through the automated car wash about twice a week, which honestly, that's actually kind of a side benefit. I, I love going through the automated car wash. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to The Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.